very pleased today to be joined by Dave Packman, whose show I had a great time being on and really happy to reciprocate today. A really interesting voice out in America, huge audience of people listening to Dave Packman, being educated, informed, and inspired on his show. Um, one of the things that you know I wanted to ask you is, you know, in this era of complete and total collapse of trust uh, in media, in institutions, uh, how do you account for the growth of your show, for, for the things that you're doing? I think it's two things. I think, number one, it's just a result of the changing media landscape, people consuming content asynchronously, uh, less of a sort of leaning on 24-hour news stations. And I think I've benefited hugely just from timing, essentially, that these technologies and high-speed internet mobile phones, which account for probably 70% of the content by by time that's consumed that I produce, I think that's been helpful to everybody in my space. In addition to that, it does seem as though, at least for the people that are in my audience, when the risks to the core tenets of our democracy seem most at risk, there's a desire to find whatever to those people seems like sanity, seems like someone who just is going to support political differences aside, some of the basics that the country is funded on. And, and so I think that without question, the threats to our democracy that go back to the Trump term and obviously January 6th have made people seek out, okay, minor political differences aside, who can I count on that no matter what are going to support some of these basics that, that seemed uh, sacred at one point, and that's the sort of environment I try to create. So I think it's all those things. When you look at Trump, tell me the threat that you think he poses. And and what I mean by that is I have a Canadian wife. I've been very outspoken about Donald Trump. And I was talking to somebody who would be recognized in the country as a very, very prominent commentator has been for a long time, would be recognizable. And he made a comment. It wasn't a joke. It wasn't dark humor. It was pondering uh, his personal situation uh, with regard to the probability of political reprisal, imprisonment, who knows what. Uh, If Trump is to be taken literally and seriously, this person would certainly, as would I, uh, you know, be on a list of people he wants reprisals about. I mean, after after the last election, um, after the Lincoln Project, my involvement ended, there were millions of dollars of flyers that were uh, distributed, uh, millions of dollars of cost to them, calling me a pedophile um, in all the adjacent zip codes. Uh, that's harassment. Using the power of the state is something different. But I, but I say to my Canadian wife, I mean, ponder this. Would, would, and, and it's, and it's, and it's flabbergasting to, to me to, to even to think this. But because I've been so outspoken against Trump, would I have to leave the country? Um, you know, is there going to be an American who asks for political asylum in Canada um, because of Donald Trump if he comes back to power? And when you talk about this stuff, at some level, 
when I hear this coming out of my mouth, I think I sound batshit crazy uh, in the United States. But there's a big part of me uh, that that's saying to that voice, no. Um, this is plainly played out on a seven-year basis. Uh, a lot like you thought it would. And we're in a very dangerous moment. And I, and and I, one of the questions I've been like most looking forward to asking you is this one. I mean, how how do you see danger, right? In this in this in this moment, growing closer, uh, steady at a distance, real. How do you how do you see that? Well, in terms of the danger, there's all the things that have been said many times including the ones you and I spoke about when you were a guest on my show, when it comes to the attacks on media, the weaponization of, of government against political opponents, threats to journalists. There, there's all the things you're talking about. I obviously believe all of those things. And the additional layer I've been thinking about lately relates to what Hillary Clinton said. It was either last week or the week before. Many criticized her. The idea that this is a cult that needs to be deprogrammed. There's this question of, how far does the cult go? Does the cult uh, outlive its own leader? What are the circumstances in which the Republican Party maybe can get back to what it was at one point in the past, which I think there's an important disagreement among the left about these accelerationist sort of debates. Is the left better off with the craziest and most dangerous possible person because they will ultimately fail and then it will make our side look that much more sane and then we can improve things. Or are are we the left better off with people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Rep Mitt Romney representing the right, who are less crazy, arguably more effective, but sane people that we can deal with? I tend to be in the latter group. I've never bought into the accelerationist ideas. Part of it is historical that some of the greatest advancements for for my political movement have come incrementally. The progressive era of the late 19th and early 20th century, the New Deal era, the civil rights era. So for me, the accelerationism has never seemed like the way to go. So where that gets me is at some point, I mean, Trump's almost 80, maybe he wins and gets four more years, maybe he doesn't. But what happens after that point? And when I see the interviews that my correspondents are doing with some of these people, they seem to be true believers to the degree that I don't even know that it ends with Trump's whatever death, the end of his political career. I don't know what it is. And so that's the layer that that's scariest for me, which is what does the cult do post Trump? Let me talk about that. And then we'll we'll talk about some of the things we're seeing on the on the left right now play play out with regard to Israel and Hamas and some of the fractures inside the Democratic conference. But yep. you and I agree that, and I, I just want to just stipulate to this, make sure there's no disagreement. If there is, it's fine. We'll, we'll just talk about it. But, but for the purposes of being aligned, I think you and I absolutely agree uh, that MAGA is a minority faction in the country that has the possibility to take power in a coalition with apathy, that it's an autocratic faction, that it is fascistic um, in character and nature, that it's dangerous. Um, 
and that it's ascending uh, at some level, that it's spreading. What, what I would say to you, I mean, the answer to your question is Jim Jordan uh, is what the future of this looks like, right? That's what the metastasis is. And it has rendered the third oldest political party in the world, lock, stock, and barrel controlled by Donald Trump and these people into a nuthouse. And in a two-party system, um, you need two wings on the plane, proverbially, uh, so to speak. And all of the great achievements um, that you talked about, all of them, um, required bipartisan cooperation. You have, you know, one of the great heroes in the in the country's history was the Republican governor of New Hampshire, who was one of FDR's most ardent New Dealers, um, John Winnan, who goes on to become the the U.S. ambassador to the U.K. during the, you know, during the Second World War. You look at Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I look for. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Republican governor of California, has delivered the most significant environmental achievement uh, of the 21st century as a matter of policy. And that was California's Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act, uh, the first major global warming legislation in the country, AB 32. You know, so that's the, you know, that's the question at hand, right, is, you know, the ability to look at the country as Americans and say, hey, it's the idea of the country that's being challenged here, you know, not a dispute over not a dispute over policies. And I guess, how do you evaluate how the Democratic Party's leadership is doing framing that, you know, framing that message right now? I mean, you have a lot of polls, incredibly, you know, three years on in a in a two team league uh, where the people were talking about here. Party of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump are ahead. A couple different thoughts on this. I mean, it it's not sufficient, but I think it is necessary to mention that there is a material change to the texture of political debate since the Trump era, wherein it actually doesn't matter what Biden and Democrats do. They're starting with an even bigger deficit than, for example, George W. Bush did among Democrats before he did anything like we that happened under Bush, where there was a contingent of Democrats who would just say, no matter what, I don't approve of what the guy's doing that. I don't care what the facts are. Group is bigger than ever right now. So but that it's too simple to just say that's all that's going on. It is absolutely the case that even many Democrats don't know about some of the achievements of Joe Biden. You know, I'm starting to think about a segment for my show. I don't know exactly what shape it'll take, but something along the lines of, is Joe Biden the the best Democratic president, president of my lifetime by achievements? I mean, a lot of the things that even I didn't think he would do, uh, he's forgiven more student loan debt than any president in history by by number of dollars. CHIPS Act, Inflation Reduction Act, you don't have to like all this stuff. But from the point of view of achievements, this guy's gotten with a divided Congress a shocking amount of stuff done. I agree with having gotten out of Afghanistan. It was a mess. It would have been a mess if Trump did it, too. There's all of these things. And many Democrats have have trouble. And I'm not a Democrat, but I'm on the left, have trouble naming any of these things or even saying, well, I don't know, the economy is like kind of OK, maybe, but but it's not even really that great. So I think you have to blame the Democratic Party for that 
to some degree, maybe corporate media takes some responsibility for that. And there's a there's a real disconnect happening there. I'm going to analyze the poll, the accumulation of all the polls out there. Someone who's been around the track in a, in a couple of presidential campaigns. If we were sitting around in a meeting and in a political meeting, right, there are people around that table who have a lot of different kind of views on policy and everything else. But from a campaign perspective, right, a, a fungal campaign is not a debating society. Um, it's a, it's trying to accomplish a goal. It has a it has a broad amount of people at the table. But 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 ideally, you want to be able to look at a set of facts, right, in, in a condition and and say what we're going to do about it. So I'll give you a perfect example. George W. Bush, uh, as someone you know who knew him, you watch him. Anybody who looks at George W. Bush and is like, that guy is stupid. I've always regarded as the mark of stupidity is the person who says that that out loud, right? He's he's not a dumb guy by like any stretch of the imagination, and neither was Ronald Reagan. Right. And I think their writing and everything else proves and I understand the politics of it. And there was a cohort of the population, right, that these guys, these are dumb guys. Neither one of those campaigns, and I was I was part of one of them, ran a campaign trying to assert George Bush was the smartest guy in the country. He's a genius, in fact. And so I look at the Biden campaign. Right. And the first thing I see is they say. Ah, he's not old. He's the wisest guy in the land. And then I look at the polling. It's not what people believe. They, they have they have deep, deep worry about this. And so there's that. And so there are two things the American people are constantly told. The first is that the country is hopelessly and evenly divided. In fact, about 80% of the country, broad principles, agrees on solutions to immigration, guns, abortion, uh, even bigger numbers, broad dissatisfaction with healthcare industry, insurance companies, lots of room for common ground. And they're told over and over again, Countries right down the middle. Now, 80% of the country is saying, we don't want the Trump and Biden rematch. Don't want it. And so there's a lot of crossover in that. From left to right, uh, tall to short, <laughs> you know, skinny, skinny to heavy. Right? A lot, lot of cross-section of America in that. The two political parties as institutions that were told never agree on anything. Well, as an observer sitting out here in California today, well, they agree on something, right? I mean, what they agree on is in a duopoly structure, right? You're going to get what you get and you're going to like it. And so here we sit in October, Trump slightly ahead. 80% of the country saying we don't want it. 80% of the Republicans on the stage, like automatons, right, saying 
to a question right after they condemn the guy for the insurrection. But yes, we'd be for him forever, no matter what, if he's if he's the nominee. What Joe Scarborough said, like on his show, is 100 percent true, right, that every single Democrat who comes on that show. When the camera light goes off, they're like, I'm really worried about Biden's age. Right. And I've been in this meeting with them and this happened or this happened or that happened. But when the camera light goes on, it's all shut out. And I just mentioned that because I'm old enough to have been sitting watching that exact same thing happen in 2015 when I was sitting with all the Republicans. And so, like, there was a time when every Republican in America had the position I have on Trump. We all had it. When it ended, there were like 10 of us left. Right? <laughs> there were 10 of us left. So like, I look at that right now and I want, what is your reaction to that? Right? This idea, this belligerence in the political class that, you know, someone talks about primarying Biden, challenging Biden, right? Credible thing. It's not just the DNC that goes nuts, right? It's it's MSNBC that goes nuts, right? It's it's across the board. And I, I just, what is the disconnect between the political and media elite? And I hate to use the elite because it's, but what's the disconnect here between the country and the people broadcasting from D.C. and New York as you see it? Because it is profound. Well, I, I think there's a few different interesting things to talk about here. And one of the elements of this that isn't mentioned in the polls that I've seen, which would be, even if you think Biden's too old, are you still going to vote for him if he's on the ballot and the alternative is Trump or DeSantis? And I believe the answer is overwhelmingly the answer is yes. So, you know, I as I've talked about with my audience, I don't have any. For me, it is. Yeah. Right. For me, it is. Right. Sure. I, would, I mean, he could be in an he could be in a liquid oxygen tank. Right? <laughs> like, right. I mean, well, so so I think I think what that gets us to is I would love to move to the next generation of leaders and have someone more energetic. I've talked about not necessarily on all policy, but in terms of style and ruthlessness in dealing with some of these crazies. I like Gavin Newsom's approach. I like Pete Buttigieg. There's a bunch of different people that I think would be from a, from an optics perspective, way, way, way better. And so do I think Biden's too old? But in some sense, by the letter of the question, I guess I do. But obviously I'm voting for him. And so I don't know it's, if it's so much about a disconnect. I think corporate center left media isn't willing to just say what I'm saying, which is, yes, this is true and we're still better off with Biden. And so in order to keep up a certain appearance, they will just say and the Democrats will just say he's not too old, which is almost like a shortcut to he's too old, but we're still going to vote for him because it's the better option. I'm more comfortable saying it the way I see it. I think most of my audience is kind of on the same page. I, By the way, and one other thing, Steve, if I can just quickly add, I don't know if you've seen the actuarial analyses of Trump and Biden. I mean, Biden's a couple years older, but statistically, he's going to live longer because he's not obese and he exercises and whatnot. So I think if we only want to care about who's likely to survive, I think the, 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 the it's a crazy conversation, but the math is on the side of Joe Biden. 
I always joke around with people with this when this subject comes up on how long Trump's going to live for. And I say my over under on this is about 125. (laughs) He'll be he'll be eating four Big Macs a day, right? Dividing America well into his hundred and aughts. Um, I hope not. But but I but I do worry about it. Let me let me turn away from the Republican craziness um for for a minute and and I want to talk to you um as a progressive about a, about a couple of things that that are never talked about on MSNBC and and every and everything else if you watch Fox News for any length of time what you appreciate is that the dishonesty is epic the propaganda is effective. It has been generally unresponded to over the case of many years, but the programming doesn't run against Joe Biden per se. It runs against the most extreme instances of whatever you want to call it on the far left. So Fox is running against the San Francisco district attorney, right? That's their image of America. And I've talked to people, I mean, who genuinely believe, right? Portland is gone. It's gone, right? It's like Nagasaki, Hiroshima, right? It was was burned in the Black Lives Matter. It was a nice city. It's gone. It's been gone for years. It's gone. Now, I've lived in California on four different stints and I lived in San Francisco and was in and out of San Francisco at times all the time when Willie Brown and Gavin Newsom were, were the mayor. And I'm going to say this about Gavin Newsom, right? Who I've known for a long time. And I like Gavin was a great mayor. And so was Willie Brown. And San Francisco did not look in any way, shape, or form then, like it does today. And I think that Gavin Newsom is unimpeachable uh, with regard to his progressive credentials and in a historic way, whether it's gay marriage or another or things. I think he's pragmatic. I don't I don't think being progressive and pragmatic are in conflict with each other. Uh, whatsoever, but people want law and order. And when you look at Los Angeles, you look at San Francisco, it is hard not to look and conclude, are things falling apart? What's happening here? And all of this politically, there's no question who it accrues to the benefit of. We will never be taken over in this country politically through an election by some far left cabal. We will we will be a fascist country long, 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 long before that could that could ever conceivably happen in the in the United States. But when you look at the at that reality that I just went through, mayor of San Francisco, district attorney. And then you look at the images on elite campuses, right? In a country where 60% of 
you know, the population is living paycheck to paycheck, 40% don't have $400. And you're looking at these Harvard students out, right? In what, what a lot of Americans view as a pro-Hamas rally, right? In the immediate aftermath, right? Before the Israeli strikes come back. React to that because politically, that a resurgent, angry left manifesting itself politically helps only one person on the ballot in this in this election and they have a right to do it everyone has a right to participate in america say say whatever but i'm wondering how you see that now because that fissure on the on the left has been one-dimensional on the crime piece out of the cities and now there's a second element to it and there's yeah. a fracture on this in the Democratic conference. Well, listen, I am at odds with a contingent of my audience and a significant contingent on the left of this issue. And it's in it since this Hamas terrorist attack happened, it's only become more pronounced. Now, my view on this issue is that, I mean, forget about pro Hamas. I mean, it's a terrorist group that committed a terrorist attack period. We can talk about decolonialization. We can talk about the blockade. We can talk about stopping water and, and food uh, settlements. I'm up for talking about all of it. But anything short of this was a terrorist attack. They were targeting civilians, women, children, etc. And as progressives, there can't be anything other than a full denouncing of that. That already puts me at odds with a component of the people on the left. Now, very quickly, the emails start coming in. David, you're biased on this issue because you're Jewish. You just, you're just not the right person to comment on this because you're Jewish, which I am quick to remind my audience. You know, That's the argument the right used against us when, when we were talking about gay rights. Right-wingers would email me and go, David, you can't let, of course, the gay people want rights. They're biased. We need they can't be involved in figuring out what to do. Or during the Iraq war era of 2003, you oppose the war. Did you serve? Oh, you didn't. Well, then you're just biased against the military. You, it's it's the same argument. Right. So and by the way, if the Jews are biased on the issue, we've got to discount what any Palestinian says because they're also biased on the issue. We've got to discount what Americans say because America has a video. So this stuff to me is some of the worst of the left. Now, I believe that I see this issue through a progressive lens. And so my view is I'm never going to support authoritarian regimes or terrorist groups. I'm never going to support groups that subjugate women or gays or if you want to leave the religion, what happens if you leave the I'm a progressive, so I'm never going to support those things. Now, many on the left disagree and say, David, you're ignoring the colonial history of Israel. You're ignoring this context. You're ignoring that context. The truth is, if I were to summarize my main gripe with this contingent of the left right now, without delving into details, it would be many on left and right want to make the Israeli-Palestinian conflict a simple issue. And they will attack those who want to bring nuance nuance. The right will say it's really simple. Israel's the only democracy there. Everybody else are savages. They should bomb everybody. 
the right will say, or I'm sorry, the people on the left will say it's a really simple issue. Israel is a unique, bloodthirsty oppressor that can do no right and maybe doesn't even deserve to exist. I don't agree with any of these simple views on the issue. And I'm finding that people on both sides of the aisle are very displeased with the perspective that I'm putting forward. As somebody who does this and has a massive audience and, you know, it's clear that you deeply respect the audience. There's a trust relationship. It's a great show. And do you find when you look at the comments and the emails coming in, does it worry you? It certainly does when I see some of mine sometimes. It does. The capacity of people to hold competing, contradictory or nuanced thoughts and the emotiveness of of a reaction to an opposing point of view or thought, does that, it's something I find very, very concerning and is something that has changed incredibly over the arc of my adult, adult life. Yeah, I'm very troubled by it. And, you know, I, I showed my audience some of the messages I got over the last week from people saying, you know, I'm canceling my paid subscription because you're just so biased on this issue of Hamas. And the the idea of bias really means I have an opinion you don't like. We all have biases. These are opinion shows. By definition, it's all bias. None of us are claiming to be doing reporting here. And it's not unique, right? I mean, I know that my audience and I sometimes disagree about, for example, GMO foods. I've seen no good evidence that GMO foods are unhealthy for humans to consume. Yes, if they're GMO in order to cover them in pesticides, the pesticides can be bad. But I just don't see any evidence that GMO is unhealthy. Some people in my audience disagree. They say it's, it's bad for you. On nuclear, Many in my audience are reflexively against nuclear power, like as a bridge to renewables, because they think of the safety record of the 70s. And I know a little bit about how new nuclear would be built. And I don't think there's a safety issue. And I'd be open to doing that as a bridge to renewables. Many in my audience disagree. But those disagreements don't have the texture of I'm canceling my membership right now that me just saying, hey, you know, um, like, yes, it's it, when any civilian dies, it's a tragedy. When any child dies, it's a tragedy. But imagine if Israeli military was willing to use human shields in the way that Hamas does. What do you think would the, the death toll would be in these situations? Because there's not a moral equivalence in some canceled. I'm not even allowed to open that door. And so it, it's very troubling. And at the end of the day, I'm comfortable just disagreeing with people, being in the room with people I disagree with and think, hey, here's nine things we agree with and one we disagree with. Uh, it seems yeah, that that comfort having, is gone. Without having the impulse to kill them, I imagine, right? Yes, like, right. Destroy their lives and all of these things. I've, I've always had friends, um, you know, that, you know, just have, have ranged the political spectrum. I mean, from you know what you know in my view way out there far left right you know a couple um you know that you know always been way out there on the you know on the right and 
you know, never been an issue. It's, you know, to me, you know, the line cross is when you deny the result of an election, you know, the entire society foundationally is built around reapportion power through elections. So I don't know how the society continues when all of a sudden you have the political leadership of one of the country's two parties decide we're going to opt out of the foundational element of the of the society. The other things I think have been over the line would be if somebody is just straight up like a KKK anti-Semite, obviously I'm not going to have them in my social right. circle. Yeah, but I think these right, are sort of, of like reasonable limits. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, I, you know, I got my, I have a friend group that like, you know, you look at any given problem, right? And, you know, you would have one guy who said, you know, you need to spend a billion to spend, send that problem. And then you got someone on the right and be like, no, I think it's $50, right? And I, <laughs> What? Like maybe you meet in the middle somewhere. Um, I, but when you look at the reaction on, let's just on the campuses, the civilian casualties that will occur in Gaza, the loss of life is no less important than the loss of an Israeli life, the loss of a Palestinian child is no greater an offense in my view in the eyes of god than the loss of of an israeli child the difference indisputably is that the israeli children killed on october 7th were murdered and the palestinian children who will suffer and die will die in a war that that came as a result of an act of terror and murder that was state-sponsored by the Iranian regime, full stop. And then there's an additional context. This was a pogrom. What is a pogrom? Why are pogroms important? And I suspect that those Harvard students in the most privileged cocoon that you can imagine in the country don't know, haven't been taught. They don't know a lot about the Holocaust. They don't understand what it means for Jews to hide, defenseless, waiting to be killed in that matter and the repetition of that through history and then the mass cheering globally for a savagery that was written about in the jerusalem post in terms of what are you looking at here right if you've been in a war zone you've seen death in a war zone it's a horrible thing but what was this? And the this, according to some of the eyewitnesses, was probably comparable to what happened in Rwanda, was the, was the level of butchery and the level of savagery. Progressivism, historically, in this country, which misunderstood has not been a Democratic Party vessel, been both parties, Teddy Roosevelt 
one of the great progressives. But progressivism was steeped in a morality and optimism, a belief of inclusion. Do you view this as an infection, a, a cancer? Because when you have people cheering for the savage butchering of babies, before there's any type of reprisal is their first instinct. What is that? And and what it is to me is anti-Semitism, obviously. And and I and I really mean this, right? And I and I I was the one thing I would say Trump did good. Right. I always have this question. I've never said this out loud. Right. Was it did what give me one thing Trump did 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 a good job at. And there is one thing. I think Trump did a good job with the space program. And I'm a space program guy, right? But, you know, I've kind of changed my tune over the last couple of weeks. Because we go to Mars, we're going on Elon Musk rocket. Which means probably our first export off the Earth is going to be anti-Semitism. Which we should probably just keep here. Right, since it's right, like kind of the first, like sign of the first hatred, and we're not ready to get it. And I, I just like want to ask you, you know, I, I've been, I'm a very outspoken, you know, as a as a Republican, former Republican on the right about all of this. You know, how how do you think about which I think needs to be confronted is the baseline of immorality that there's some group dynamic some thread across these universities that are very specific in character where there's some sort of significant explosion of dogma grounded in anti-Semitism after unfathomable violence, they're out sharing it. I mean, there, can you imagine if there was a pro-ISIS rally like five years ago? And I, I just, help me figure out what that is. And as a progressive, yeah. What are we going to do about it? What what we're going to do about it, I don't know. But the degree to which, I mean, listen, I've been, whenever this comes up, I'm careful to point out that I really do believe that we're talking about an extremely loud, overrepresented group of the left. The reason I'm confident in saying that is when I brought this issue to my audience, you might wrongly think looking at the comments on my videos, et cetera that the group you're describing is a huge portion of my audience. Once I told my audience about this and really started hearing from the people who they just live their lives, they go to work, they raise their kids, they listen to my show and they don't feel the need to write me all the time. I heard a day from a deluge of people who said, hey, you know what? The stuff you're saying isn't even controversial to me. I'm a progressive. Obviously, you're saying things that make perfect sense. You're hearing disproportionately from a very loud group. I think that that to a degree is true about the college campuses. And also there are some real problems to to be dealt with. You know, my, my uh, younger half sister is in college now, and I'm not going to say where she goes to school, but at where she goes to school, there is a mandatory fee for an on-campus um, uh, Arab American Muslim group that immediately demonstrated in favor 
not of the killing of children, but immediately felt that after this terrorist attack by Hamas was the time to come out and say, we're decolonializing, we're moving closer. Um, and the on-campus Jewish group, the Hillel group, doesn't get any funding from everybody. It's, listen, if you want to donate to Hillel, you can, and you can take a guess, you know, which which group is getting the appropriate amount of funding, despite the controversial actions that they're taking on campus. That sort of stuff is like a structural problem in my mind. And what I think it comes down to, to a great degree, is that Jews in the U.S., you have to fight to explain to people that it's a it's a historically marginalized minority group because of many of the tropes about conspiracies to control banking and Hollywood and the sort of stuff that's become part of the narrative. And you're kind of pushing a boulder up a hill. You're 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 swinging swimming against the current. We saw this with the women's march where there was a resistance to having Jewish women on the board because they weren't marginalized enough. They were privileged in modern America, 2020, 2017 or whatever year it was. So I think it's a combination of um, lack of information, lack of historical knowledge, as you point out, and uh, some successful movements that have worked along these lines to convince people. Um, when you, when you, when you look at the next 20 25 years in American life. Something's going to give here. Um, and I'll use four data points. Um, so the Pentagon cannot pass an audit. It's too big to audit. And that being the case, what it, what it means substantially, right? And this is the largest kind of just, you know, part of the budget uh non-entitlement is we don't know where things are we don't know what things cost we don't know why things are where they are uh why they cost what they did we just it's a, it's on un, it's unmanageable and that's a that's a threat to national security there, there is no group of people that have been more profligate with taxpayer money in all of the course of human history than the Republican Congress and Republican presidents of the of the most recent era, though they bear the majority of the reason we're at thirty three trillion dollars in in debt as a as a country. Um, you know, Democrats have 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 some involvement on that. One question I, I have for you, like on, on that piece of it, does that worry you? There is a school of thought that the size of America's debt doesn't matter. It can grow infinitely. I've never been in that school, but I'm also someone who has been wrong in that the implications and the consequences for the debt or something at this level that I already thought would have happened. But like, I've come to the conclusion, I'm not, I'm not an economist, but I, but I have a, I have a, I have a ideological point of view, so to speak, which is there will be a debt crisis ultimately. And when it happens, it's poor people who will be the most dramatically affected by it. 
And and so before I kind of go into the back half of this question, does that does that does government spending without really kind of strategy, purpose, profligate, does that does that bother you as a as a progressive, like boil your blood? Do you look at it through a prism of when you mismanage trillions of dollars of resources, the people who get hurt by that are the people that you're trying to deliver a service to. Like, how, yeah. how do you think about government inefficiency, spending, and, and debt as a progressive before I kind of ask you the back half of this question? I try to look at it from as much of a data-driven perspective as possible and kind of take ideology aside. I mean, ideologically, there are certain activities that I want mediated through government. I don't want private militaries. I think uh, when it comes to the military, I'm a socialist. When it comes to uh, healthcare, I would like to see more government involvement. Doesn't have to be Medicare for all. I've seen successful models from many different countries that have mixed systems or nonprofit systems or, okay, but I'd like to see government more involved either directly or through regulation in that area. And that involves spending, et cetera. With regard to the debt in the terms of its raw numbers, Number one, the debt sort of can keep going up in the sense that if as a percentage of the size of the country, it's under control, we can all understand how if you make 10 grand a year versus a million bucks a year, a $100,000 debt represents a very different situation at the individual level. So similarly, the debt can keep going up if it remains a relatively stable proportion of GDP you can argue it's actually not really a problem as long as we're not late on payments and it doesn't become a national security issue because of who the money is owed to, et cetera. So simply as a mathematical reality, the debt kind of can keep going up indefinitely within context. In terms of why we are deficit spending, that's where I just look at the economic multiplier effect of different government programs. You take something like food stamps and compare it to cutting taxes for the richest 1%. We can assign an economic multiplier, meaning what is the likely follow through effect of every dollar spent on food stamps versus a dollar given to someone who doesn't need it, is just going to stick it in a bank account. And so I believe that you can do deficit spending with a higher economic multiplier that is net economically stimulative. And that's not a problem to me. That's not scary to me. So when you look at healthcare and the back half of the question is, as a progressive whose basic argument is, I want government to provide more services and more spaces to achieve an outcome uh, that accrues to the public good and, and to the national interest. Is it fair? Generally speaking, yeah. I mean, to say I want the government doing more, I might want to change some of the things the government's doing rather than just say add a whole bunch of stuff. But yeah, I think there are areas that are we have an interest in taking out of simply the market system and saying we're gonna we're gonna affect them in some way. So so healthcare, you, you talked about very briefly. When you see government involved in in healthcare in a different role or increasing role, however you think about it from this moment, 
do you want to see government operating the healthcare system or do you want to see government really assuming payment responsibilities right in an in an economy where we have this crazy system where in the end and it's too complicated to talk about at the time we have left but trust me right like everyone watching you all pay for this everybody pays yep. right we're already all paying for this right so the notion that a cost would be imposed on you that you're not already paying with regard to healthcare has always been untrue, right? right. It, it's coming. So, but, but I think like a lot of people hear you say that, hear a progressive say that, you say the government's going to be between me and my doctor, as opposed to government's going to pay into a system in a way that removes my economic anxiety that I break my leg, I'm going bankrupt. Am I? Yeah. So here's the deal. What I would do, there's this is so far from realistic in terms of the direction that this country is going, that what I would do if I were to rebuild it to the ground up is less relevant than the options that would be improvements on what we have now. There are countries, including Argentina and many others, Every country has pros and cons where the government does operate some hospitals, and then there are also private hospitals. And you are entitled to free, obviously, everybody's paying for it one way or the other, whether it's through healthcare premiums or taxes or however it is. You can go to the public hospitals. You can also choose to go to private hospitals and pay out of pocket or get different insurance that covers you at the private hospitals. But what's the point of the whole thing? The point of the whole thing is everybody gets access to something regardless of ability to pay. In other countries, it's not that the government is operating any healthcare facilities, but they are simply becoming a central insurance. It, it is not tied to employment. Um, if you if you do work, you do pay an additional tax. If you don't work, well, then it's subsidized by those who do work, but it's not tied to employment. And that's a very common model in many countries as well. You could also look at a model where everybody is required to get their own health insurance. The health insurers are nonprofit and it is subsidized by the government. I mean, all of these options I'm open to. I've interviewed experts on the Singaporean system, which is different and very interesting. Germany and Switzerland have different models. France is like, I believe, a nonprofit plus additional insurance. I'm really open to any system that will ensure no one falls below the cracks and ends up using the emergency room for primary care, never paying. And then we all pay for it anyway. Nobody benefits from that. Uh, th that's one priority. Um, and also, if if it's possible, decreasing the, the cost to the end user as well. So this is, here's my last here's my last question for you, and I want to bring you back to something that that you said at the beginning when you were talking about uh, President Biden infrastructure legislation, some of the domestic policy achievements. I was hiking in Utah last week on a CCC trail, and there's a there's a road marker for it. It was made by uh, men from New York and New Jersey, right and you know, as a New Jersey native, right, living in Utah, um, uh, you know, uh, almost almost ninety years later, right, walking on this chat trail, right? what 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 an achievement, right? And there's 
And there's academics, right, that will debate, right? Hey, was this successful or not? Like, as you're walking on the trail, right? That that counts as an element of success too, right? So, so there's gonna, the 21st century infrastructure in the country, like 50 years from now. When, when you look back, like who did that, right? Joe Biden did that, right? In the same way that we look at the infrastructure, like right now in the country, drive on an interstate highway, who did that? Dwight Eisenhower did that. Right. And, and enormously transformational pieces of legislation. I, I, I completely believe that. Historic, politically and psychologically. It's like the White House, when I look at kind of the comments, there's this neediness. It's like the campaign is in search of a thank you at a moment when the country's in a fuck you state of mind. And secondly, um, everything that government can do has to be built on a foundation of belief that it can make things better. And right now, trust is so broken. So to me, it's like trying to start a fire with wet wood. The greatest progressive leader in American history, bar none, was Franklin Roosevelt by way of achievement and success. When times were tough in 1932, his campaign song was not Everything Sucks. It was Happy Days Are Here Again. How does a progressive specifically talk to the country about rebuilding the trust necessary to implement a progressive agenda, which inherently is built on we can do something and that something is going to make things better. How do you think about that as somebody who I view as a real important voice communicating to a new generation about some of the most important ideas that have ever been put down by the mind of humanity to paper. And this imperfect experiment is the result of it. The political traditions that have emerged from within it or as old as democracy and its concepts itself the ideas of restraint versus the power of change, trying to find that societal that societal harmony. But trust, to me, just seems so elemental. I wanted to ask you that last question before I ask you to deliver your warning, which I'm looking forward to. I mean, listen, I would probably go to folks like you to figure out the right way to message this. But just thinking off the top of my head, I think the case I would try to make is I understand the reason for the erosion in trust. Anyone after the last seven years would have a limited or non-existent amount of trust. Here are the historical successes of the movement I consider myself part of. I would talk about some of the ones I mentioned earlier. We also don't need to convince anyone in the sense that we already have the vast majority of the public on our side. As you talked about earlier, when it comes to so many of these issues, we've got 60, 70, sometimes 80% agreement already. 
What we need to do is every single one of us participate in the system such that the elected officials in DC actually represent our views rather than, as Princeton said, the views of the wealthy and of corporations. If we can do that, then we are going to start going in a path where we can continue to, to have more of these achievements. I mean, I think that's the arc that I would kind of try to establish. Next time I talk to you, the, the, the thing I'd love to talk about is the size and scale of corporations in America in the 21st century and yeah. how we think appropriately about breaking them up. But I have run out of time. Um, it's been a great discussion. We've started a new thing here where we ask our guests to deliver a warning. Oh, boy. Uh, to the audience. And uh, here you go. A warning of just a general warning of any kind. A warning. There's a lot happening in the in the world right now. And, you know, what do you want to what do you want to say to, you know, people about any subject? Um, it's important for them to hear. I'll uh, give you two things. Is a great, great patriot, uh, deeply knowledgeable. And a vital voice in America's uh, political ecology right now, I think. I'll give you my political and my non-political. The political is really try to look at primary sources for whatever it is that you're trying to figure out in the world. Primary sources, whether it's books from people who were actually there, whether it's original direct reporting from those on the ground, whatever it is, primary sources. Don't get sucked in beyond that. Uh, start with primary sources. And then number two, a warning that it's a really good idea to try to walk 10,000 steps a day and eat 30 grams of fiber a day. That's my that's my health warning to everybody. Two, two good, good bits of advice, I hope. Dave Packard, thank you very much. Great to be with you today. Really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Thank you.